Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 139, 139. Now, because we are gathered here on a Sunday morning, I'm going to make an assumption that you are here because either you know God and want to learn more about him, or you want to know God. I think that's a safe assumption. If we were here and this was a restaurant, I think it'd be safe to assume you were hungry. Or if we were at a car dealership, it would be safe to assume you wanted a car. But we're here at a church, and at a church, we talk about God. That's what we do. I think it's safe to assume that you're here because you want to know something about God. And actually, take that back. I don't just mean want to know about God. I mean that you want to know God. You don't want to know about God as maybe a, uh, you might learn about a frog as you dissect it in biology class, or about, you know, the geography of Florida. I mean that you want to know God as a person. You want to know him as a friend. Well, this psalm teaches us what it means to be in a personal relationship with God. And it does it in a most exciting way, not by you know, breaking down the elements of a relationship with God, part one, part two, no. It does it by giving us an example of what it means to know God. We, we see here in this psalm, David, who is called in the Bible a man after God's own heart, actually knowing God. We see him engaged in an active relationship with God. And this psalm then invites us to have the same dynamic personal relationship with God that we see here. Now, if by chance you slip through the door and you really don't want to know God, let me challenge you a little bit. Now, the Bible says that no one is going to go to heaven who doesn't actually want to know God. Uh, Jesus, when he returns, will, the Bible says, inflict vengeance on those who do not know God. Uh, Jesus said eternal life is this, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Friends, there is nothing, nothing more important to spend your life investing in than knowing God. If you do not know God personally and intimately, I would encourage you to see this psalm in the same way a dying person receives a medicine that would save their lives. Or maybe a drowning person gasps for air. That is to say, eagerly, desperately, you, you need to know him. Well, let me read Psalm 139, and then we will explore how this leads us to know God better. Psalm 139. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. 
If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, even when there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sands. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who would rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, help us understand this passage. Help us to know you better and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what do we see here? I think we see the psalmist's relationship with God consisting in this, consisting in how he appreciates God's character penetrating down into the depth of his being. I think that's the essence of this psalm. In other words, we see David knowing God as the one who knows him. David here is oriented to God as God is oriented toward him. In other words, all of me is exposed before all of God. So here, David, uh, think of it this way. David just doesn't, sorry, David doesn't know just that God knows everything, but he knows everything about him. Or he doesn't just know that God penetrates into everything, but that God penetrates into him. He doesn't just know that God created everything, but that God created and oversees him. And he responds to God out of awareness of these realities. I think you could divide this psalm roughly into four parts. These aren't so much places in the argument as they are Uh, stages in the unfolding conversation. This is, from beginning to end, an interaction with God. So what are those stages? First, David here talks to God about God's knowledge, and then that flows into David talking to God about God's presence, which then flows into talking to God about God's creative ability. And then finally, that leads David to talk to God about how he responds to God. So knowing God's knowledge, God's presence, God's creative ability, and response. That's the flow of the conversation. So let's follow that out. He he begins, as I said, talking to God about God's knowledge, God's knowledge of him. You have searched me and know me. That word for search means to understand something in order to come to a thorough knowledge of it. The word in Hebrew is used of the spies going out into the land to uncover all there is to know about the land. It, it means to you know, learn so that you know. That's kind of obvious there, but it helps us to think about it. 
Notice the tense of the verbs there in verse 1. You have searched me. You know me or have known me. It's in the past tense, and that's actually a bit odd for Hebrew poetry here. Usually in poetry, everything's in the present tense because it wants to just show this as one you know, ongoing living picture. But the psalmist here wants to make a point, and that point is that God's knowledge is a completed action. It's, it's already happened. He's not knowing, he knows. This searching and knowing is not like you and I might, even with our closest friends, always be learning about that person more and more. Even with your spouse, learning about them more and more. That's not how God knows. One theologian put it this way. God knows everything in one exhaustive and eternal act of knowing. That is to say, God always knows everything that there is to know. God does not know everything because he spent his life studying it and then has come to learn it. He knows everything by virtue of who he is as God. And then you see in this Psalm, David's mind running to all sorts of things about what then God knows. And he says, you know when I sit up and when I rise, or sit down and when I rise up. Friends, God knows when we're headed out to work in the morning. He knows the traffic will hit. He knows when you're in a place where you should be, and he knows when you're in a place where you absolutely should not be. And it says here, he knows my thoughts from afar. You could also translate that, he knows my intentions. He knows my purposes. In other words, God doesn't just see what you're doing and knows what you're doing. God knows why you're doing it. That's why Samuel can say, man does not see as God sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God sees into the very depths of who we are. So, for instance, God knows that you did that good deed last week simply because you wanted to get noticed by others. Or because you wanted to be seen as spiritual. I once remember uh, apologizing to a person, not because I felt the least bit bad for what I did, but because I wanted him to think that I was that kind of person. And he saw me as a kind, caring person, and God saw me as a huge hypocrite. God knows to what degree the opinions of others rule our lives and that we just do things because we're afraid of others. We want to get noticed by others. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Friends, have you ever, has ever something come out of your mouth and then you thought, oh my, where in the world did that come from? Maybe it was good. Maybe it was bad. Maybe it was a lie. Why did I tell that lie there? Well, God knows even before you did it, and he knows why you did it. Or or do you ever um, open your mouth, and in your mind, what you want to say is so clear to you, but then it comes out in such a way that nobody ever understands it? I mean, I never have that happen, right? Of course. No, that's not true, as you all know well. Right. Well, guess what? God knows exactly what you meant to say. In fact, God knows how the words that you say reveal your true heart even better than you know how it reveals your true heart. After meditating on God's knowledge, the psalmist comes to somewhat of a conclusion here when he says, you hem me in before and behind and lay your hand upon me. Other versions say something like, you have enclosed me. You have encircled me. One version says, says, you squeeze me. I thought of this verse this week as I was holding my youngest daughter in my lap during our family devotions. I had her entirely surrounded. She could not get away. 
Like it or not, she was very aware of my presence. David, too, is deeply aware of God's presence, but even more deeply than we could have a human surrounded because he knows us down to the depths of our souls. And this leads David to say in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful. It is too high. I cannot attain it. He's saying there, I'm undone and overwhelmed by the greatness of who God is. I wonder, I wonder, have you ever responded to any of God's attributes that way? Have you ever just been undone and overwhelmed by who God is? I have had a teacher, actually, uh, both Steve and Keith and I all had the same teacher, whose goal in seminary it was to get his class to uh, the point where, where they were overwhelmed trying to understand who God is. He called it blessed despair. I give up. I can't understand it. Well, my goal is to bring you to that point right now. Listen to what one theologian, John Frame, says about the differences between God's knowledge and our knowledge. Listen to how he summarizes how God's knowledge and our knowledge are different. This always brings me to the point of blessed despair. There's seven things here. We'll go through them quickly. First, God's thoughts determine what comes to pass, right? God says, let there be light, and there's light. We can't do that. Our knowledge cannot make something exist, no matter how much we want it to. Number two, God's knowledge is true simply because it's God's knowledge. It is true by definition of it being possessed by God. He is the ultimate cause of reality. Our thoughts, on the other hand, are not necessarily true. So many of them are false. We can believe something so strongly, and yet our, the strength of our belief does not make it truly real. Number three, God's thoughts always bring him glory. Our thoughts do not necessarily bring God glory or ourselves glory. Number four, God's thoughts are the, or, the, the origins, the archetypes. Our thoughts are at best copies, images. Our knowledge would not exist if it were not based on God's knowledge. As one person said, what we do is we think God's thoughts after him. Number five, God does not need anything to be revealed to him. He knows what he knows by virtue of who he is. Neither does God ever come to a conclusion by reason. Well, if this is true, then this is true. This, is, oh, this must be true then. God never does that. He just knows everything. By way of contrast, everything we know is based on revelation. We know because God has decided to let us know. He has revealed it to us. We come to know by our seeing, hearing, sensing, reasoning. Number six, our knowledge is limited. There are only so many facts we can fit into our brains. God's knowledge is unlimited. He knows everything. And there are certain things we just can't know, like the future. Well, God knows that. He knows everything actual and possible. He knows what would have happened if these you know, other things didn't happen. He, he knows the, all the contingencies. Number seven, God's thoughts perfectly cohere. They are not chaotic. God's thoughts agree with each other completely. In contrast, our thinking can be muddled up with so many contradictions and inconsistencies. Now, friends, at various times, I've come back to that list again and again because I want to go to that point of blessed despair. God's knowledge is too wonderful. See, we, we need that because we have a tendency to think God is like us. We assume that because God knows things and we know things, well, God's knowledge must function pretty much like ours does, and yet that's not true. 
God's knowledge is so much higher than our knowledge. It was, it's too high. I cannot attain it. But this psalm is not only contemplating the greatness of God's knowledge, but he's following out the implications to realize that this way that God knows is exactly how he knows me. I am the object of this amazing knowledge. And then not only does this make our mind explode because God is so amazing, it also makes God feel incredibly close. And this leads David to the question in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Here David is transitioning between talking about God's knowledge to then talking about God's presence. And I don't think verse 7 there is David feeling at all like he actually wants to flee from God's presence. He just wants to test and ask the question, could he? It's like when you, you give that child the bear hug and they, they don't necessarily want to get away, but sometimes they want to know if they could get away, right? David answers the question in verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that is the underworld, the depths of the earth, you are there. If I take the wings in the morning, that is, if I, if I could fly away with the birds and go out to sea, God's there too. And Dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. In other words, there's nowhere I can go in the world where God is not right there with me, beside me, hemming me in, knowing me deeply and intimately. And then verses 11 and 12 carry this thought one step further. I think you could summarize verses 11 and 12 this way. He says, darkness and light make no difference to you. You know what is in them either way, so I cannot hide in darkness, and I am not alone in darkness, so bring on the darkness, and it's okay. In other words, David is saying, even in a situation that is dark to me, it is not dark to God. And David is assuming that if God sees into the darkness and sees him in that darkness, God also cares about him in that darkness. And so David is saying, I don't have to fear the darkness. Friends, this truth keeps Many Christians boldly sharing the gospel, even when they are in horrible circumstances and up to the point of death. I remember reading a story of a woman years ago arrested for her faith and put in a Soviet prison. It was freezing cold and she was given almost nothing to wear, and, but she said during that time, God's presence n- never felt so close and so deep. If I make my bed in a Soviet prison camp, even there you are with me. How would you paraphrase that verse for your life? Even in the hospital, you are there. Even in this difficult marriage, you are there. Even when I don't have any clue how to pay the bills, you are there. In the midst of trying and difficult situations, you need to know that God sees everything you don't see. And God knows everything you don't know. And God is there in all the places where you feel all alone. And friends, remembering that makes all the difference in the world. Notice in this passage what grounds his belief in God's presence. Why? Why does he believe this about God? It's very interesting. Look at verse 13. For, for tells us that it's related to what came before, right? He's giving his reason, his explanation. Here's his explanation for why God is present. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. In other words, he's saying, if God's hand was upon me in the darkness of the womb when I was so small and utterly incapable of doing anything for myself, if God was with me then, 
I can trust he will be with me anywhere else I go, though it may be dark and though I may feel helpless. See, friends, however, I don't know your situation, but however weak and out of control things feel now, it's not as weak or out of control as you were in the womb. And if God cared for you then, do you think God cannot care for you now? See, here David is transitioning once again from talking about God's presence to now talking about God's creative concern. And the the connection there is, if God is present, he is concerned and he will act. That's what he assumes. And so David says, you formed my inward parts. I think he's thinking there about who we are deep down inside, our conscience, our desires, our will. Basically, who we are as a person that is uh, different than our, that is not our physical existence, right? Our physical being, rather. The reason why God is so present, particularly in the area of our consciences, knowing the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, is because God made our consciences. He made our hearts. He made our capacity for moral choices and decisions. That's why he's present there in those decisions, in those thoughts. We could sum it up this way. Since God is the creator of my spirit, God's spirit has access to my spirit at all times and in every place. That's what this is saying. God has access to the deepest parts of who we are because he made the deepest parts of who we are. And not only did God create our inner selves, he made our outer selves. You you knitted me together in my mother's womb. You put me all together. Friends, there is no room for thinking that God makes our physical bodies but then leaves our consciences up to whatever direction they take. Or that God is only concerned about our spiritual life and doesn't care about our physical bodies. No, God made both because he's, he's concerned about both. And now listen to how David responds. Verse 14. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. By the way, no parent should... Mind if their kids make a little bit of noise, especially at this part, right? This is, they're fearfully and wonderfully made. It's okay. Well, in reading this, we're supposed to recall to mind what David said about verse 6. God's knowledge is too wonderful. Remember that? He said in verse 6, God's such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. And remember we said that David is contemplating himself there as an object of God's knowledge. But then by the time we get to verse 14, David has thought through the implications of this a bit more. And not only does he see himself as the object of God's knowledge, he also now here sees himself as the product of God's knowledge. So now, not only is God's knowledge wonderful, but but he sees himself as wonderful there. And of course, this should not lead us to pride, but only to humility. Because when we realize that we bear the marks of God in our own body, in our own soul, all the way down to the depths of who we are, then we should also realize that we have the opportunity to humble ourselves before God in everything we say and do and everywhere we go. Speaking of pride, it's very interesting to compare this passage to Isaiah 14. You don't have to turn there. I can just tell you what it says. That passage in Isaiah 14, some people think it's talking about Satan. It may be talking about Satan or just a very proud ruler. Either way, the person in Isaiah 14 says this. He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. 
See there, the proud person says, I want to go where nobody else is, even God, so that I can claim to be him. The humble person says, wherever I go, God is already there, and may I worship him and proclaim his excellencies even there. Friends, do we spend our lives trying to make a great name for ourselves? Or do we spend our, time, our lives trying to search out the greatness of God? Now, the psalmist draws implications from this. Look at verse 15, starting there. He says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, even as yet there was none of them. His point there is that nothing is hidden from God. So when he was yet unformed... God had already formed all the days of his life. See that play on words? He's unformed. God has already formed his days. Before he was recognizable as a human being, God had the moments of his life already planned out. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, so we're just robots then. Don't we have free will? Can't we choose? Now, I'm not going to answer all those questions. I'm not going to address that fully right now, largely because a lot of it's mystery. We can talk about that later if you want. But I do want to point out to you how David interprets God's control over all of his life. Look how David interprets it. Verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. These things that God has planned out, the moments of his life that that God has planned out for him, are, according to David, God's precious thoughts about him. See, this is not cold predestination as if God just pulls a lever and God just decides, okay, you'll be born here, uh, lose your parents here, fired from your job here, new kid here, die here, okay, next, and just, you know, works humans like that. That's not the picture here. No, David sees God foreordaining his life as God's precious care. David interprets God's predestination in his life as we would interpret someone we love thinking very much about us. Don't we like it when someone we love is thinking of us? You know, if someone says, uh, sends you a text, I'm thinking of you, that, that probably warms our soul. God is thinking of us. It just so happens that when God thinks, it determines reality. God thinks and things happen. Think about it. When somebody objects to the idea, it's not fair if God plans my life, what they're really saying is, I don't want God to be that close or that great. But the point of this psalm is that if we really know God's character, we want him to be close because he is so great. Now, before we transition to the next part, I think it would be appropriate to to bring up some of the implications of this psalm for how we view life in the womb. It's not really the main thrust of this psalm, but nevertheless, it's an application for today that is particularly important. And the idea of being fearfully and wonderfully made is a strong motivation for Christians to protect the unborn child. Now, science has given us more evidence of what fearfully and wonderfully made is, we think. So, for instance, by week three and a half, the heart of a child begins to beat with the child's own blood. By week eight, every organ is in place. And by 21 weeks, it's even possible for the child to be sustained outside the womb. And the pictures that we've no doubt seen of unborn children reveal how fearfully and wonderfully made they are. And therefore, we must protect the integrity of the unborn child. All that, I think, is true. But it's interesting. 
even though I think this psalm would wholeheartedly affirm the conclusion of that argument, I don't think that's the exact argument that that is made from this psalm. See, when David says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, he's not saying that on the basis of his DNA pattern or, or cellular structure or his tiny hands and feet. He's saying that. Actually, David calls himself here a blob. He says, you know, my unformed substance, that, that means a blob there, just a clump of cells. But he's fearfully and wonderfully made because of God's intentions and purposes for him. See, David doesn't look on human life in order to assess its value. He doesn't look at human life and decide how valuable human life is by looking at that human life. He looks at what God thinks about that human life and assesses its value. And friends, we should do that too. And if we can see the development of the child, the hair, the hearts, the hand, well, then that's just bonus. I think there's also application here for someone who might have lost a child in the womb. I've heard that one of the hardest things for a mother is that they, they claim that they know that child uniquely because that child was uniquely part of them. Well, if that's you here this morning, perhaps it helps knowing that you weren't the only one to know that child. God actually knew that child. He knows that child. And he knows that child far deep, more deeply and intimately than you ever would if the child had lived a full life. And you aren't the only one who loved that child. God loved that child. You see, the point of David bringing up the womb is that even in those secret dark places, he is there, God is there, and he cares. And David's argument is that if God knows us even in the womb, surely we can trust him that he knows us and cares for us wherever we might go. Now there's one more transition that David makes in this conversation with God, and it's a, it's a transition that we might not expect. Look at verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Now you're thinking, what happened to that nice psalm about being in a close relationship with God? Why does he suddenly start going on talking about hating his enemies? Well, let me ask you this question. What would happen if you were in a close, personal, intimate relationship with someone, and yet you knew that were, there were other people who wanted that person dead, what would your posture be towards those people who wanted your intimate friend dead? Here's a scenario. Suppose you're living in Nazi-occupied Germany during World War II. You're not Jewish, but your spouse who you love is. Could you love your spouse and be best buddies with a Nazi officer? I don't mean pretend to be best buddies in order to protect your spouse. I mean, really, just be close, personal friends with her. No, I don't think so. I think your loyalty towards your spouse would cause you to oppose anybody who would oppose them. And David's point here is that his intimate, personal relationship with God leads him to stand opposed to all God's enemies. He can't be friends with somebody who opposes God. And friends, we see that same thing in the New Testament. James tells us, do you you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Anyone who makes himself a friend of the world is an enemy to God. Friends, I think that point we especially need to understand today. You see, 
in this world, we're typically okay as long as we're just affirming things and welcoming things and being really inclusive. But as soon as you say, well, to affirm this means that I oppose this, as soon as we say that, typically we're not looked favorably upon. And yet that is exactly what Christians must do. To say that God is good is to say that all that opposes God is bad. And to stand with God is to stand against other things. Friends, how, are you, how well are you doing that? Are you doing that in the workplace? Are you doing that in your schools? Are you doing that in your families? Now, how we stand opposed to those things that oppose God, well, well that, that's determined by a number of factors. But let me suggest that the main way for us as believers to oppose God en- God's enemies is by forming ourselves into a church where we live differently than the world. You see, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Satan hates the gospel, and he hates the church that is founded upon the gospel. We oppose God's greatest enemies by organizing ourselves as a church and living differently than the world, holding one another accountable, and most important, proclaiming the gospel. That's how we oppose God's greatest enemies. And that's why we here understand the church to be more than just a preaching point. You know, something like a movie theater where you just come and show up and, you know, watch the show and then leave. No, we understand the church to be God's people gathered together who stand distinct and different. And we stand with him. And there's another way directly from this passage that we oppose God's enemies. And we see that in the last two verses. Verse 23. Search me, O God... And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. If you were paying attention, this is really what David says in the very beginning. Remember? He says the same thing in the beginning. But here now, he says it as a prayer to God. He doesn't say, you have searched me. He says, God, search me. He turns this into a plea. And I think he does that because he's been thinking so much about how he must oppose God's enemies and also thinking so much about how deeply God penetrates into the depth of his being. And if he's thinking about both those things, it naturally leads him on a search and destroy mission to kill anything, any sin residing in his own heart. See that? David now looks at his own flesh. He battles against God's enemies by battling against his own flesh that wages war against God within him. You see, if there were secret parts in our heart that God could not get to, we could harbor sin there and be okay. Problem is, there aren't any of those secret parts, and therefore no sin is safe. There's no place where we can hide it. Well, friends, whose sin bothers you most? Is it the sin that you read on the news feed or comes across your television? Is it the sin of the people you live with? Or is it your own sin? Friends, we are hypocritical if we make a public display against sin, but then yet don't stand even firmer against it in our own hearts. Now, how do we do that? How do we oppose sin at the level of our hearts? Well, we need to know first and foremost about the gospel. Our sin puts us against God. And if God were to extract absolute justice, it would require for him to oppose us, to oppose us in eternal condemnation. 
But God sent his son to die on the cross, taking upon himself the sin that we deserve. Not just the sin for our superficial acts, the lies we tell, but the sins of our heart, the reason why we tell those lies. The deepest sin that we cannot even see ourselves. And Jesus bore that all on the cross. And then he sends his spirit on a search and destroy mission in our own hearts, weeding out everything that is not for him. Friends, the way we apply this passage to our lives is not by just trying to clean up our lives on our own. The way we apply this passage is by coming to Jesus. We need his death and resurrection and his spirit. We need him to live our lives. And we need to put our trust in him. He is the source of life. And he sends his spirit in our lives to, to live with us in a more intimate way than we could ever imagine, to reveal to us even more his greatness and power. Let's pray.